before we get started, I'd like to um, acknowledge uh, the traditional owners of uh, the land uh, on which we meet, the Darug Nation. It's quite interesting, the Darug Nation, because um, there are a number of clans, and um, one, the Parramatta clan, which is along the Parramatta River, where Parramatta um, name came from. Barra meaning eel, and um, Matta meaning creek. And this was a meeting place in the afternoon of a number of um, Darug uh, Nation clans, uh, much like we're doing tonight. So um, welcome, uh, welcome everyone tonight. So this year, as you um, may have seen on, the, um, on that little video, is the 10-year um, anniversary of Sydney Ideas. And Sydney Ideas for the University of Sydney is really, really important. Sydney Ideas aims to provide that bridge between academia and the public. And um, I think over the past 10 years, it's been an amazing success. There has been um, a number of... Um, um, leaders in disciplines presenting their ideas, communicating it to, um, to the public, and the public have certainly um, um, uh, been better for that. In fact, there's been over 700 events and over 100,000 um, cumulative um, audience uh, for Sydney Ideas presentations. And it's important that um, um, as this decade of Sydney Ideas presentations that um, we now launch uh, Sydney Ideas Westmead. This is um, something to celebrate the precinct of Westmead, a really interdisciplinary health and wellbeing focused precinct where we believe we can actually change health and wellbeing for Western Sydney and, uh, and beyond. And the University of Sydney is certainly proud to be a, um, a uh, partner of the precinct. I'd, um, I'd like to certainly um, thank um, uh, the Westmead Institute for Medical Research and the executive director who was unfortunately unable to make it, but Professor Tony Cunningham, for allowing us to present uh, tonight's uh, Sydney Ideas Westmead. Um, it's an absolutely wonderful venue, as I'm sure you agree, and um, we will be in August in um, Science Week um, working with the Westmead Institute for Medical Research to hold um, two other um, uh, Sydney Ideas presentations. So please stay tuned. Look on the Sydney Ideas website uh, for that. The, um, um, the other important thing about tonight, and I think it's um, uh, really important, is that we're actually linking with the Marie Bashir Institute for Infectious Diseases and Biosecurity which is also the NHMRC Centre for Research Excellence in protecting the public from emerging infectious diseases. And Westmead is going to be a, um, a national centre for this, and I think it's really fantastic that we're able to, um, um, to have the Marie, Marie Bashir Institute um, and, um, of course, the director, Professor uh, Tanya Sorrell, who's going to be chairing uh, tonight's um, Sydney Ideas um, event. Um, and if I just now just briefly introduce uh, Tanya, um, um, an amazing academic, an amazing um, educator and researcher and a, 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 an amazing friend as well. So um, I'm certainly proud to be um, standing up here to introduce, introduce Tanya. So Tanya is the director of, as I said, the Marie Bashir Institute for Infectious Diseases and Biosecurity and um, the Centre for Infectious Diseases and Microbiology. 
She's also um, here a member of the Westmead um, Institute for Medical Research and um, Professor of Clinical Infectious Diseases and a senior physician um, in infectious diseases here at Westmead Adult Hospital. Uh, she's the chair of the NHMRC's Research Translation Faculty Steering Group on new and emerging uh, health threats, and um, that's certainly um, a great claim, and internationally renowned infectious diseases physician uh, and um, researcher. And in fact, I need say no more because she was awarded a member of the Order of Australia for her significant... Uh, contributions and service to medicine in the community in the infectious diseases uh, area. So without further ado, Tanya, thank you. Thank you very much, Chris, and welcome, everybody. It's an enormous pleasure for us, really, to have the first Sydney Ideas Westmead Forum on an infectious disease. It wasn't so long ago that the World Bank, in fact, said that secondary to water issues at a global level, emerging infectious diseases are going to be the next major threat to a sustainable existence. So I think it's opposite that we're talking about an example of one such tonight, namely Zika virus, but it's not the only one that's been on the agenda recently. You'd all be aware of the Ebola epidemic in West Africa, and fortunately there were no cases in Australia. You may be aware that there's a yellow fever epidemic in Uganda at the moment, which is causing a lot of concern in the African region. But tonight we're focusing on Zika, and we're going to think about whether Australia is prepared or not uh, in the context of Zika, but maybe broadening it to other infectious diseases as well. And I'm really delighted to have a terrific panel who's going to be talking to you quite briefly, uh, and then we want to make it fairly interactive and have questions from the audience or from myself uh, if you're flagging a little bit. The first speaker I'd like to introduce is uh, Dr. Grant Hill-Cawthorn. He's a medical microbiologist and senior lecturer in communicable disease epidemiology in the School of Public Health and uh, one of our linchpins in the Mari Bashir Institute, too. And Grant is going to focus particularly on emerging infections from a virological point of view tonight, but he has a few other tidbits that he wants to make you aware of. So thank you very much, Grant. Thanks, Tanya. And so my brief tonight was to think about emerging infectious diseases. And... If any of you were around in the 1950s, 1960s, infectious diseases as a specialty were starting to die because it was really recognized that most things had been tackled. So we had antibiotics, we could cure most infections, we had routine vaccinations in most countries, so we could actually prevent many of the childhood diseases from occurring in the first place. And then suddenly, since the 1960s onwards, we've seen all of these new infections emerge, things like all of the hepatitis viruses, HIV, um, all of the drug-resistant infections such as multidrug-resistant tuberculosis. And then, as you've seen on the global stage, all of these different infections that were once all infections in remote communities in Africa but are now on the world stage and are seen as a major issue. So what is it that causes an emergent infection? Well, I always think it's kind of three things. One is you need a susceptible host. And... For things like Zika virus, we are that host. And so you need to be non-immune. You have to be able to catch the virus 
And that virus has to be able to multiply in your bloodstream to then be transmitted on to other people. The second thing you need is obviously a way for that to be transmitted. With Zika, we know one of the major ways is mosquitoes, so we need the vector to be in place. So we need that combination of people being in a place where the vector is, and of course that final aspect is a pathogen itself. So we know with viruses they constantly mutate, and they constantly find ways to both evade our own immune system, but also enable themselves to be transmitted better. And that might mean that they're adapted to mosquitoes to transmit, it might mean that they become airborne um, when previously they were less so. So Zika sort of falls into this category where it used to be a very minor issue but now has hit the world stage. And there's a number of reasons for that. One is it's what we call a flaviviruse. And so flaviviruses are this family of viruses that include things like yellow fever, as Tanya was just mentioning, dengue virus, West Nile virus, all viruses that are constantly causing emerging infections in countries where they weren't previously present. And part of that is down to the fact that they can mutate and um, become more transmissible by their hosts, but also they are transmitted by vectors. And as Cameron will talk about later, the vectors are a major problem in many more parts of the world than they may once have been. The Zika virus is named after a forest in Entebbe in Uganda Zika means swampy, and this, this forest is a very swampy forest full of mosquitoes. Um, these mosquitoes typically carry 60-odd different viruses. But as I said, it used to only really be an infection that people in Uganda would get, and the first human cases were only really seen in the late 1960s. And that was when we could actually culture the virus and see it from a patient sample. But it really caused very minor outbreaks. However, since then, since the 1960s and through the 1980s, it's gradually made its way across the world, coming across the equatorial um, band across Africa and into Asia. And even up until 2007, there'd only been about 30 cases in the literature. So if you were a Zika virus researcher, you've really struck gold in the last couple of years because you had a very small niche area that only you were working on, and suddenly it's big news and there's lots of money available and things. It came to everyone's attention in 2007 when it caused an outbreak in Yap in the Federated States of Micronesia, and at that stage caused around 100 cases. But it acted as a platform for it to get into French Polynesia, into Easter Island, into the Cook Islands and New Caledonia, causing 9,000 cases in one year. And then, as we've seen, at the start of 2015, it has gone into South America. And it's met all of those three things a vector that can transmit it well, a huge number of people that aren't immune to um, this type of virus, and also the circumstances um, for the pathogen have made that as an outbreak. So where are we at the moment? So as of the start of this month, we've currently got 60 countries around the world with ongoing um, mosquito-borne transmission and actually 46 of these countries, this is the first time they've actually had this outbreak. So that's 46 new countries experiencing an emerging infection this year. People have actually stopped counting the number of cases. It's well into the tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands by now. And as Cheryl will talk about later, it's part of the problem with trying to diagnose this infection that has meant that it's spread so widely. Ten countries have experienced person-to-person -person transmission, and that's in the form of most likely sexual transmission. But a number of countries spotted these connections, 
first with microcephaly, which Cheryl will talk more about, and also with a neurological disease called Guillain-Barre syndrome, where about 13 countries have seen a spike in cases of Guillain-Barre. So what was done about this? So in February of this year, the combination of microcephaly and Guillain-Barre caused the World Health Organization to call, call this a fake, not a fake illness, but a public health emergency of international concern. And this is a power that the WHO has under what's called the International Health Regulations, which are the international laws that try and govern our detection and response to infections. And by calling this a fake, what it did was try and mobilize people, A, to put in research funds to actually get to the bottom of why it's causing these abnormalities, but also to try and get a response happening. It launched a joint operations plan, um, which so far to date has cost about $56 million, mostly focusing on vector control and trying to identify and get on top of cases in South America. It launched last week this interim report, um, which is an interestingly telling tale. If you have seen any of the reports following the Ebola outbreak, most of them have said the key problems for the WHO was not enough money, not enough people getting on the ground early, countries not responding to the pleas of the WHO to actually give donations. And you'd have hoped from all those reports that we would have learned our lesson. Unfortunately, that's not the case. <coughs> countries around the world have pledged about 10% of the needed money to try and tackle this. So there's again this huge funding gap. Again, countries did not sign up at the World Health Assembly last year to have a $100 million contingency fund to deal with these kind of issues. So we are constantly on the back foot, as you can imagine, in tackling these. We have to mobilize the money quickly and then get people over there to actually respond to it. So to date, this has not been a major problem for Australia. Um, we've had about 60 cases in the total since 2012 when we started recording. About 37 of those cases have been in the past year. In New South Wales, we've only had eight cases. They're obviously the ones that we've detected. There may be um, a number of asymptomatic cases out there. But it, again, and my sort of lasting point here is so far, in terms of response money, DFAT has given half a million dollars. And it is a good question for whether Australia should be better preparing for these emergency um, outbreak responses by actually putting money into the countries where it's needed to get an effective outbreak before we start to have more problems here. Thanks very much, Grant. I'd now like to ask Professor Cheryl Jones, who's a senior paediatrician at the Children's Hospital at Westmead. She's also a deputy dean in the Sydney Medical School, and she leads the Neurological Infections and Inflammation Node within Murray Bashir Institute. Cheryl's had a long-standing interest and done research in congenital infections, so she's very well-placed to tell you about the problem of Zika. Thanks, Cheryl. Everybody. So Zika virus, what does it mean for people who are infected? Well, for most people, it doesn't mean anything. In fact, only about one out of every four or one out of every five individuals who've been infected have any symptoms. <coughs> and the symptoms they experience are usually very mild. And these include a very fine rash over the body, a fever, not terribly high, muscle aches, headaches, Conjunctivitis or eye inflammation that's not crusty, 
but for usually this is a self-resolving illness somewhere between a week to 10 days. But for some people, a small proportion, there are some rare complications. And one of the known complications has been something called Guillain-Barre syndrome. What that is, is where the lining of our nerves <coughs> has been damaged by an immune response so that for a period of time until that recovers, we have floppy muscles and altered sensation. And we've known for a long time that a number of infections and responses to infections can trigger this syndrome, but it's very rare. However, when Zika virus had spread to the uh, Islands and then to the Americas late in the middle of last year, one of the first things they had noticed was that they were suddenly seeing an increase in this rare syndrome, Guillain-Barre syndrome. They also had been aware that there was an increase in this type of mild illness that people get already in those areas, related often to dengue and other viruses, chikungunya, But when they went looking by the usual blood tests for those other viruses, they didn't find it. And that was the first clue that there was this outbreak of Zika that was ongoing in those areas and spreading to new countries. Towards the end of last year, there was another concerning finding of a relatively rare event, something called microcephaly, micro-small cephaly head. And paediatricians were seeing, whereas, uh, and this was mainly in Brazil, whereas, you know, they may only see a very small number of cases, somewhere between 2 and 10,000 cases, they were suddenly seeing something between a 20 to 40-fold increase in cases. And at this was associated with a reported increase in Zika virus infections. So we had two events happening together, Zika virus and these rare syndromes of congenital microcephaly and And that's what triggered the alert by the World Health Organization that Grant had alluded to. So the next step was we were very concerned, could these two events be related? The next piece of evidence came early this year where we had the first evidence that Zika virus could be passed across to the unborn fetus. And this is where some babies had died in utero in the womb. Post-mortem, they had identified the virus, <coughs> the genetic material of the virus, not only in the lining of the womb, the placenta, but also in the brains of the babies. And that was associated with babies who had abnormalities. Other pieces of information evidence also emerged and that was women who knew had Zika virus infection in Brazil had <coughs> evidence by ultrasound during their pregnancy of babies having brain abnormalities, particularly smallpox. So that the link between those two bits of information was becoming stronger. And then um, that's only increased with further evidence now where they've shown um, evidence from um, mouse model where they have infected mice with Zika virus and shown that it itself can also cause um, abnormalities in fetal What is microcephaly? Microcephaly, as I said, is a small head. Part of the issue is that when this was first described in Brazil, <coughs> there was uh, a report of thousands of cases when that was subsequently investigated, it was realised that there was differences in what people were doing in their methods. So, in fact, the number was smaller, but somewhere still between about 1 and 2,000. There are many causes of microcephaly. These include other infections, which are quite common. 
such as cytomegalovirus or rubella virus or a parasite called toxoplasmosis. Mothers having any toxins in pregnancy, including alcohol. There are known genetic abnormalities that cause small kids and a number of other causes. So there were many common causes that had to be excluded and then we had to look for Zika virus infection. Of all of those babies born in Brazil with microcephaly, only a proportion of them actually had Zika virus infection. So the link appeared to be real. We also were able to go back and look in French Polynesia where we know there'd been an outbreak a few years earlier and trace with women who had had evidence of infection in pregnancy with whether the outcome in their babies. And again, the link with microcephaly was identified. But there are many questions we still don't have answered. And these include, at what time is the greatest risk of a mother getting infected and passing it across to her baby? How likelihood is that risk? And what is the full range of abnormalities that a baby can develop? At the moment, apart from microcephaly, there are problems in the eyes, there are problems in the gastrointestinal tract, there are problems in the growth of the baby, there are problems in uh, the skeletal structure, so there are a lot of strictures. And these are just a few. We also don't know the long-term consequences of those disabilities. But we can extrapolate from other infections like cytomegalovirus or rubella virus that have caused these disabilities in babies to know that there's a high likelihood that these babies with symptoms at birth will have long-term problems. And these would include things like cerebral palsy, visual impairments, and uh, hearing So how is the virus transmitted? Grant's already told us some of the mechanisms. Obviously, the greatest risk is mosquito bite. But we do know that after a mosquito has bitten you and passed the virus across into your bloodstream, you can carry it there for a couple of weeks. But importantly, it can be in other secretions too, and that's including the semen. And that's where we first identified that um, <coughs> people can pass the infection across, particularly importantly for pregnant women, um, through sexual transmission. That risk is not fully identified in terms of how frequent it is. It appears to be relatively low. But again, we know that if a man has Zika virus in, um, an active Zika virus infection, there is a, a small but identifiable risk that she, he could pass it across to a pregnant woman and that could affect her developing fetus. There's also been rare reports of bloodstream transmission infection from blood products where a person has been a blood donor when they've had active Zika virus infection. So this obviously then relates, asks us to the question of what advice do we have to give to people? As, as Grant and, and as Cameron will tell you, the risks at the moment are there is a large number of countries in the Americas and in uh, the South Pacific Islands where there is current Zika virus activity or recent Zika virus activity. <coughs> For a pregnant woman, our current advice, and this has constantly been changed by the federal government, is that you should not be travelling to an area with current Zika virus activity. But clearly, if there is any unavoidable reason, the most important thing anybody can do travelling to those areas would be The other thing is to consider if you are a partner of a woman of childbearing age who is either pregnant or considering to become pregnant and you have travelled or are travelling to a Zika virus infected area, again, like all of us, you should have a strict attention to your protection. 
Upon return, if you have a pregnant partner, the current advice is to sustain or use barrier protection condoms for the duration of the pregnancy. And similarly, to have a period of time if you have a non-pregnant partner to use barrier protection or external. But the current recommendation is three months. So, as I said, the most important message though is about mosquito control, and that's a good segue to welcome Thanks very much, Cheryl. So Cameron Webb is a principal hospital scientist uh, with New South Wales Health Pathology. He's also a clinical lecturer at the University of Sydney and a member of Murray Bashir Institute. Cameron is very experienced in dealing with mosquitoes and I think is able to tell you everything you need to know about Zika and mosquitoes. Thank you, Cameron. Thanks, Daniel. So I should start with a confession uh, here, and that is that I actually find mosquitoes quite fascinating. Uh, I actually even think they're quite beautiful, um, and that puts me in an awkward situation because mosquitoes are also the deadliest animals on the planet. And we know that because the pathogens they transmit kill well over half a million people every year. It makes hundreds of millions of people sick. They estimate that about 60% of the world's population is at risk of a mosquito-borne pathogen. And I probably would question, is there somebody on the planet that isn't bitten by a mosquito at least once every year? And so it's something front and centre of the minds of, of many people. So with Zika virus grabbing the, the attentions, we start to think about another question. And this is a question that I get asked a lot, and maybe some of you here have thought about this as well, and, and that's it. If we were given the chance, would we eradicate mosquitoes from the planet? That's one vote for sure. But I want to now, I don't want to be a, an advocate for mosquitoes necessarily, but I think that uh, they get a pretty bad rap. And it probably highlights one of the reasons we have to understand about mosquitoes, the way they transmit pathogens, the relationships between pathogens, in particular mosquitoes, their habitats, and what risks they pose to human health. So mosquitoes, in many regards, are an essential part of our natural environment. We've got about 300 different types of mosquito here in Australia. There's thousands of mosquitoes internationally. They're found everywhere from pristine wetlands to polluted, uh, polluted stormwater drains and gutters. And certainly for those mosquitoes that are found in our wetlands, they're food for birds and bats and fish and frogs, maybe even pollinate a few plants here and there. But there are other mosquitoes that have given up that life in the swamps and they've moved into our suburbs and our cities. And these are the mosquitoes we're worried about. They're the cockroaches of the mosquito world. They're the mosquitoes that love to live close to human habitation. They love to bite us. And they're also very effective at transmitting a suite of mosquito-borne pathogens, things like dengue viruses, chikungunya virus. And what we're particularly worried about now is Zika virus. And so when we're looking at the types of mosquitoes that drive these outbreaks of disease, we want to know what mosquitoes are, are playing that role. And in the case of Zika virus, it's a mosquito called the yellow fever mosquito, Aedes aegypti. It loves breeding in small water-holding containers around our homes, pot plant sources, drains, bird baths, rainwater tanks. Probably the most ideal habitat for this mosquito is a takeaway plastic food container that's been abandoned in the backyard and filled with rainwater. Now, the problem with these mosquitoes is that they're uh, close to human habitation, but they love biting people. They love biting lots of people. 
And whereas the mosquitoes in our wetlands around uh, Sydney and Australia will, will bite us and take a blood meal and leave, these yellow fever mosquitoes are much sneakier than that. They'll take multiple blood meals from multiple people. And that means for each infected mosquito, they're able to infect a far greater proportion of people. So this one mosquito is almost perfect uh, in terms of transmitting a mosquito-borne pathogen. Now this is where it comes to the next question. I sort of think that these mosquitoes are, in some regard, innocent bystanders because if you think about it from the point of view of a virus, the perfect mosquito to adapt to, to be able to spread from person to person, is a mosquito that lives close to people, bites people very frequently, and doesn't fly very far. It hangs around human habitation. And this is our problem that we're seeing in urban areas across the world. Where this mosquito is present, we're seeing explosive outbreaks of dengue and now we're seeing outbreaks of Zika virus. Now, understanding the role of this mosquito makes... Um, uh, it's critical for Australia because this, because this mosquito is, the, is the, the creature that's transmitting Zika virus and it's absent from our major metropolitan areas in Australia, we don't have a risk of a major outbreak of Zika virus here in Australia. This mosquito is not found as far south even as Brisbane. It's limited to central and far north Queensland, and so the absence of it really limits the possibility, at the moment anyway, of a major outbreak of Zika virus in Australia. But it's very different for the communities that live around uh, northern Queensland cities like Cairns and Townsville. In those areas, they see annual activity of dengue virus that's triggered by international travellers. And this is where the risk lies for Zika virus. A traveller coming back into Cairns or Townsville who's infected with Zika virus, they may be bitten by local yellow fever mosquitoes who become infected with the virus and then fly across the back fence to bite their neighbour. That's the process that we see every year in terms of outbreaks of dengue virus. That's where the risk lies in terms of the outbreak of Zika virus. Now, we're fortunate in that authorities in Queensland have had decades of experience responding to outbreaks of dengue virus. I've got little doubt, should we see uh, local transmission of Zika virus in North Queensland, authorities will respond by doing mosquito control around the uh, homes of those individuals, killing the mosquitoes before they have a chance to bite more people, reducing the mosquito populations before they have a chance to bite that infected individual again. But one of the things that Zika virus has really brought to our attention is the future of mosquito-borne disease control. It's easy to go now and use uh, insecticides to knock down the mosquito populations, the same sort of products you use in your kitchen to kill cockroaches, ants and flies. We're spraying that all over our cities in the tropical parts of the world. And the problem is mosquitoes are becoming resistant to these insecticides. They're not, uh, the insecticides aren't as infective today as what they were even 10 years ago because of the effort that's gone into fighting outbreaks of things like dengue virus. So we're looking at new techniques. The genetic modification of mosquitoes is a big one. Now, as technology improves, we're on the cusp of having an opportunity here perhaps to genetically modify mosquitoes in the laboratory, release them into lab to do our dirty work against the wild mosquitoes, and possibly maybe use to eradicate mosquitoes from some uh, regions of the world. And so we need to start thinking about you know, if we do have these opportunities to eradicate mosquitoes, should we? And that's something that I think about a lot when I'm uh, going to sleep at night. I don't want to sign off on the eradication of our wetland mosquitoes, but I'm happy to take a chance in eradicating the mosquitoes that are spreading these, these pathogens like dengue and Zika virus because what ecological risks may exist will be dramatically reduced if we can eradicate that mosquito. Lastly, I'll leave you with some advice. If you're travelling overseas 
doesn't matter whether it's to an area where Zika is active or not. There could be dengue or chikungunya virus active as well. Wearing mosquito repellents that contain DEET or picaridin will provide the longest lasting protection, but you need to understand the mosquito that's spreading these pathogens. And by putting the repellent on during the day when they preferentially bite, you're going to be at the best protection of avoiding contraction of one of these mosquito-borne pathogens. So I'll leave it there and I'll hand back to Tanya. Thanks very much, Cameron. Could I ask all three speakers now to come up to the table? Take a seat. Uh, there should be a roving microphone. Someone got the roving mic? Thanks, Michael. And uh, I wonder if there are any burning questions from the audience before we start off the conversation. Anyone got a question they've been wanting to have answered? Yes. So after, um, it depends in what source. Um, after uh, a mosquito bite, uh, the virus, and it enters the bloodstream, the virus is within the bloodstream for the longest period has been about 11 days, but we say about two weeks. But as I said, it can also be found in the saliva, and that's roughly the same time, and the urine, roughly about the same time. The tricky part has been in the semen. Um, we have um, identified, and I think the longest report is about nine to ten weeks, so a number of months, and that's where what we don't know, we've seen the genetic material of the virus, but we don't know if it's infectious. So it's by a technique called PCR, and that's about, there's only been a handful of men whose samples have been tested, and that's the longest period. In babies who have had infection across the womb into their placenta, that's an unknown for this time. Um, we do know, though, so how long do they carry it in their brain tissue, for example, that's unknown. Um, but generally, we clear the virus out of our system, um, usually uh, at the bloodstream very quickly in a couple of weeks, but out of the rest of the body probably a couple of months. Carol, just to extend that, do we know anything about the female genital tract where there's possibility of transmission from female to male during sexual intercourse? Not that I'm aware of. That has, and it's certainly the CDC haven't described it. It's an interesting question, though. Yes. If someone has been in a Zika-affected area and they come back into Australia, is there a blood test that can be done to see if they have the virus within their body? I mean, because you often get bitten by things Yes. So there are two things. One is um, if you come back and you've had symptoms of the fever and the rash and the muscle aches, um, in that period of time there are tests that can be done to look in your blood, in your urine, uh, for the genetic material of the virus to see if you're infectious. So that's during that acute period. But what we can also do is if you've been a traveller to that area when a virus was circulating and returned back with or without symptoms, a blood test can be done to say, have you ever met the virus in the past? So you have cleared the virus and looked, we're looking for your immune response called a serology test. We currently are only doing those where there have been symptoms or, for example, in the setting where there is a man who has a partner of childbearing age wanting to get pregnant. And part of the reason for that caution is with the serology test, 
you as a person produce an immune response that sort of looks very similar between Zika virus and other related viruses like dengue virus and if you've had a yellow fever vaccine, for example, in the past. So it can be hard on the normal test to distinguish between those different ones. We say that they're cross-reactive. So what we wouldn't want to do is say you've had past infection with Zika virus when, in fact, you've had dengue or you've had your yellow fever vaccination in the last 10 years. So it's quite a complicated set, I guess, of tests that you do. You tend to do the easy screening test first, and that's the one that's cross-reactive. It's quite a complicated test to do to actually narrow it down to Zika. So it's really not realistic to be doing it on everybody that's coming back to the country. Ah, Olympic athletes. <laughs> Who wants to take that one? Um, I don't, I'll, I'll be okay with you. Yeah, I guess that that's an interesting question that um, has been circulating about both the risk to athletes and travellers and officials going to the games, but also on their um, return. Um, uh, look, I guess, first of all, uh, in relation to the Olympics, it's being at, held at almost the best time of the year for... Um, it's being held at pretty much the, uh, the best time of the year that you can hold the Olympics to reduce the risk for Zika transmission. It's the dry season in Brazil, particularly around Rio. Mosquito populations will low, be low. Uh, low mosquito populations mean low uh, amount of virus. So, so I might be a bit too loud there. Um, but in relation to the tra travellers coming back into Australia, we're also lucky in that after the Olympics, um, they'll be coming back into Australia where we're a long way off from the peak mosquito season as well. So in areas where we may ordinarily see dengue transmission in northern areas of Australia, that's not until the wet season, so not until really after December. And so when athletes are coming back in... October at the latest, probably, uh, the risks are going to be quite low. I think Cheryl's advice will stand, though, in that th they will be given advice to uh, either abstain from sex or use barrier protection if they're a male. If they're female, to leave it for at least a month before considering getting pregnant to make sure that you're protected if you are. <coughs> yeah. So um, I think just to finish up on that question... Uh, Cameron has actually been advising the medical doctors who's looking after the Olympic team. Is there anything additional that the athletes are going to be told they should do just to round out the, the answer? Yeah, I think it's been an interesting experience to learn about the anxieties that the Olympic, Olympians have uh, travelling to Rio and the risk of mosquito-borne disease as opposed to Australians travelling to Bali on holidays or, or somewhere else because there's, there's the anxiety about everything from do mosquito repellents put them at risk of um, some of the banned drug substances for performance, um, right through to the fact that you know some of these athletes have been working hard towards uh, the pinnacle of their careers going to the Olympics, so a lot of them will be coming home and starting to think about starting families and things like that as well. Um, the advice that we're giving them is, is taking repellents from home, particularly those that, that contain DEET and picaridin, and using it during the day. Um, and also, because these mosquitoes bite during the day, sleeping under a bed net, for instance, at night won't provide protection. A lot of these athletes have very um, specific training regimes which might require a bit of a rest at night, rest during the day. And so particularly where they're not in air-conditioned facilities, um, you know, sleeping under a bed net during the day is actually quite valuable. But I think I should be quite clear as well is that 
apart from the seasonal environmental factors that will dramatically lower the risk of Zika virus during the games, I've got little doubt that there is so much insecticide use and uh, clean-up work around the Olympic venues and accommodation that very few mosquitoes will be flying about um, during the Games periods. I think the far greater risk is probably for the uh, sports staff, the, the other tourists, and, and perhaps even some officials that are going on holidays to northern areas of South and Central America after the Games. They're probably the ones that are at greatest risk rather than those that are staying um, in Rio during the uh, Olympic and Paralympic Games. I have a question about the Zika virus and the dengue virus because when you introduce the symptoms, they are similar at the at the beginning. So, do do we have any effective way to distinguish these two virus? And they also are transmitted by the same mosquito. So, I just wondering this. So yes, we do. Um, we do from our blood tests. Um, depending, so from our diagnostic tests, as Tanya had alluded to and Grant had mentioned, uh, when we do our initial screen looking for your immune response, your antibody response, we look for the family of viruses, but then there are specific tests we can do to say which of these viruses it is, flavor, uh, the Zika virus versus the dengue virus. The other thing is if you have someone who's symptomatic from their infection and it's in their tissues, their specimens, their urine or whatever secretion, we can actually do the molecular test to look for the genetic material of the virus as well. So it can be determined um, from blood tests. Dengue virus usually can be tested around the six days, so about it's very similar, very similar <coughs> time frame. The, the question was, how quickly can you test for the presence of the infection? When you when you are symptom, so after the first onset of your symptoms, because there's what we call the incubation period, as you know, is when you were first infected by the mosquito, <coughs> and when symptoms, if they do, are going to appear, first appear. So the, I think there's a question back here. We'll come back to you. So, um, since um, viruses aren't technically living organisms, they cannot mutate, but since mosquitoes are living organisms, they can. So, so instead of killing the mosquitoes, are they actually developing something that will kill the viruses? Well, I, yeah, look, I, I, think one of, I think it's an interesting perspective to have on it about how we can break the chain of transmission of these pathogens. And I think that... Traditionally, we've tried to kill the mosquitoes and with insecticides. And now, even with new technologies like, such as the genetic modification of mosquitoes, we're looking to use them in the same way, to kill or reduce mosquito populations. I think the future is looking for ways we can modify the mosquitoes so that they're essentially vaccinated or can't spread the pathogens. We don't change the mosquito populations, but we change their ability to transmit the pathogens. And... One approach is by using an insect-specific bacteria, which has been uh, championed uh, both in, in Melbourne and other parts of the world on the back of funding from Bill and Melinda Gates Foundations, where basically you introduce this bacteria into the mosquitoes and it stops them being able to transmit, uh, in this case, particularly dengue virus they're interested in. But if we can do this on a large scale, we have two benefits. One is that we reduce the burden of disease. But secondly... We're not messing around with the ecological role that mosquitoes may play. They're still there to be eaten. 
They'll probably bite us, so it'll still cause some disruption to some people, but at the least they're not involved in driving these big outbreaks of disease. I think that's where the future lies. On the note of targeting the virus itself, these are RNA viruses, so they do mutate at a fairly high rate. And so part of the problem is if we develop <coughs> drugs just to target the virus, they fairly quickly mutate and escape from doing that. Um, so they are a moving target. So as well as vaccinating the vector, the mosquitoes, vaccinating humans is probably one of the best ways. And certainly for many decades, yellow fever has been controlled well using vaccinations. And so a lot of the current research is looking into vaccines because we have a template. We have the yellow fever vaccine. We have dengue virus vaccines that were already in clinical trials. So modifying those for Zika virus is probably a good way to go research-wise. Damn, that was going to be my question. Um, <laughs> specifically with regards to uh, similarities with, uh, with yellow fever and therefore whether we could infer that vaccination might be a suitable approach. Um, and, and in particular, if there's cross-reactivity during serology testing, uh, whether that's evidence that there might be some conserved epitopes that might be actually suitable for, for vaccination. Has there been any, any uh, study of, of cross-protection from, uh, from yellow fever? For that's a good question, actually. Um, yellow fever, I don't know. Dengue, there's mm. been some work. Yeah, and also, as you know, there's also newly developed dengue vaccines, so there's a lot of promise there. I don't know, and I'm just trying to think in terms of um, the countries where um, Zika virus has emerged, was there pre-existing high levels of yellow fever immunity, which would almost imply that that wouldn't work as a, a protection. But I don't know. I can't remember the answer. Yeah, I don't know if I can answer that question either, although obviously um, you know, there's areas in Africa where it emerged had yeah. had high levels yeah. of, yeah, so it makes you wonder about yellow fever, but I know people have been looking particularly with dengue. <coughs> in some ways, it might be a bit easier. So we know that yellow fever gives us long-lasting immunity, probably way over the 10 years that we currently plan for. With dengue virus, it was difficult because you've got the four, possibly five serotypes, and if you have immunity to one and in infection with another serotype, you actually get worse disease. So that was always the problem with the vaccine, trying to get all four with an immune response equally to all of them. Luckily with Zika, there's only two types. There's an Asian type and an African type. The African type has stayed in Africa for whatever reason and hasn't really gone very far. And it's the Asia type that's causing the current outbreak. So hopefully it might be a bit easier than dengue. Someone's been patiently waiting up the back. Sorry, guys. So there's one there, one there, then you. Um, if we were to eliminate the mosquito species that transmit viruses like dengue and Zika, would other mosquito species then replace the new niches available or even other insect species? And then these viruses like dengue and yellow fever could use the new species that are widespread as vectors. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question as well. And it's one that sort of um, been associated with the question of eradicating mosquitoes. If you get rid of this one mosquito, will the virus just move across to another mosquito? Now, that's certainly possible, but we know that very few other mosquitoes, with the exception of the Asian tiger mosquito, seem to have such a propensity to bite humans and be so effective at transmitting the pathogen. So, 
when all other, you know, when you ha- when you stand up the thousands of other mosquito species around the world against the yellow fever mosquito, none come close to being as effective a vector. So even should we have a situation where we eradicate this one key mosquito species and the virus is able to be transmitted by other mosquitoes, we're unlikely to see such explosive outbreaks. The disease won't disappear, but it'll be much, much less. And that has to do with the, again, not just the association with close human habitation, but this mosquito's propensity to bite multiple people during its lifetime. A lot of mos- other mosquitoes don't have that trait. So um, eradicating one mosquito wouldn't see the disease disappear, but perhaps the burden would be substantially reduced. Hi. Um, this is very, very random, but I'm doing a major study on microbiome, and um, you've mentioned about some of the effects on the pregnancy and the fetus, and you get small heads or etc. some diseases. Um, any kind of study about linkage between the Zika virus and the antigens in the body versus the microbiota in the gut and how we can alter that to address it without actually creating vaccines? or antibiotics for that matter, or viruses, I don't know when you need antibiotics. The quick answer is for Zika virus, no. There's a lot of very interesting work about the microbiome in pregnancy and particularly related to antibiotic use and the long-term effects on children uh, and for many things, including um, the risk of allergy, the risk of infectious diseases, in fact. So, um, but in terms of Zika virus, uh, which is largely, I guess, either coming through um, sexual transmission um, or most commonly through a mosquito bite, and the consequence on the mi- microbiota, no. I don't think that's been looked at. But it's an interesting question. But we do know, and I think it was mentioned before, that it's now known the virus is directly neurotoxic. So it's really unusual in that regard, isn't it, that it, in the brains of developing mice, it really destroys their neurological tissue. And interestingly, it seems to be mostly in the brains. When they've looked at these these stillborn babies who've died and with the Zika virus infection, and they've looked throughout the other different tissues, it's been mostly in the brain as well. Um, Sorry, I just have a question probably for you, Grant, about the Pacific. Um, I wasn't actually aware of how prevalent it was there. What's the current status of it in the Pacific and specific to Australia? Is it spread to Papua New Guinea? Uh, I'm not aware of many cases in PNG. Not um, mo- most of the outbreak at the moment has stopped in in places like Finch Polynesia and things. There's no on- the WHO at the moment is classifying countries into ongoing transmission or countries where transmission has stopped. Luckily, most of them are in the countries where transmission has stopped. We know that there is some still in Bali. Um, there was a case in the return traveler from Thailand um, in the last few weeks. So it's still there. And certainly, I think anyone traveling in Southeast Asia, as Cameron would always test to, should be using mosquito protection to protect against chikungunya and dengue and um, everything else that is around there. Very lucky to have with us tonight someone who was involved in the early part of rubella and understanding it as a congenital infection. Margaret, did you have a question that you wanted to ask? And and it, I know it's early days, but 
Do we know what's happening to the outbreak? Uh, are the number of cases decreasing, which would indicate that that uh, uh, control of the vector is being successful? And also, do you think that even in the non-season, the babies will remain a constant source of the virus, the congenitally infected babies? So I'll answer the second question. <laughs> That's my area of expertise. I would like to mention Margaret was my PhD supervisor. Um, so I think that's a really important question and, and that was the question I was alluding to earlier in that I, we simply don't know for the babies who have been infected um, uh, in the womb, so congenital infection, how long they will carry the virus and where they're actually shedding it from. It seems largely that it's in, in the, um, the neural tissues, so it, the, the clearance from the um, bloodstream happened by the time the babies are delivered. However, um, that hasn't been well described. And I think that we know, as you well described from rubella virus, that, um, that the babies that were infected, congenitally infected, fell across the placenta in the womb with rubella virus, shed the virus for many, many years in their secretions, unlike the rest of us. So it's a very important question to answer, um, and particularly for risk of transmission in the non um, the the non mosquito biting season. Yeah, just the just on the sort of global epidemic, the the numbers have been difficult to ascertain, mainly because so many people are asymptomatic, and then on top of that, so many people aren't being tested, and so actually getting confirmed numbers there there aren't really any anywhere. Um, countries like Australia have some, but it's a bit vague. What has been looked at is a number of countries with ongoing transmission, and that's still high, but it's possibly starting to tail off. And also looking at the secondary effects, so the Guillain-Barre cases, the microcephaly cases, and they've probably started to tail off now as well. So whatever's working is probably working, whether that's a change in the season or it's mosquito control. Yeah, I think Grant's right. I think it's probably a combination of those factors. But again, the waters are muddy a little bit by the lack of Good solid um, data on, on transmission rates. It was quite interesting. I was on an, a panel for some EU grants recently, and these were looking in Brazil and, and Central America about this very question. And one of their concerns was what happens by the time the research gets to be done if it's actually disappeared from the area that people want to do the research? So there are changes occurring. It's very definitely still across Brazil, but there are areas where it is actually diminishing. Now, there's another patient question I've been waiting for some time. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, I'm interested you say that this virus or this group of viruses are currently only in our northern climes, in terms of Australia, up in the northern regions. In terms of global warming, how much do we have to warm before these mosquitoes get further south into our more populated areas? And it could become a, a far greater issue, both in terms of Zika and in terms of the other viruses that they carry. <laughs> yeah, so it's, uh, it's, it doesn't sound unreasonable, does it, that if the planet is warming and getting wetter in some parts, that we're going to see a spread of mosquitoes that could drive outbreaks of these pathogens 
in other parts of the world. And there's no doubt that with a warming planet, we're seeing an extension in the range of some of these mosquitoes that can transmit these pathogens, things like the yellow fever mosquito. But there's probably another factor that is really going to be the game changer in the distribution of these pathogens. And it's not about <coughs> climate change, but it's about human movement, globalisation and urbanisation. If we take Australia as an example, the climate is not going to warm enough so that we have established populations of the yellow fever mosquito in Sydney. The reality is that we're going to see other exotic mosquitoes, something like the Asian tiger mosquito. It's not currently found in mainland Australia, but it wreaks havoc in temperate parts of the world transmitting dengue and chikungunya virus as well as Zika. The secondary vector is Zika, but certainly a vector of dengue and chikungunya virus. Now, it's far more likely to survive in cool climates. So we know that if it got into mainland Australia, it could become established in Sydney, Melbourne or Perth. And that's the game changer. To have a mosquito widespread in metropolitan Sydney that's capable of transmitting dengue, that's the real concern. And when we talk about preparedness for the future, it's about talking to our colleagues at the Department of Agriculture and Water Resources and government agencies to fund surveillance at our ports. How do we develop strategic plans to respond to the introduction of these mosquitoes? Because that's what's really going to drive changes. And so if you take the Asian tiger mosquito, for example, that's been responsible for local transmission of dengue in New York. It drove the biggest outbreak of dengue in Tokyo in 70 years, a couple of years ago, and it transmits um, chikungunya virus in places like Italy and temperate regions of Europe. Having this mosquito widespread in the backyards of Sydney or Brisbane, Melbourne or Perth, is that's going to be a big stretch for our local health authorities. Thanks. Uh, Cheryl, there's been some speculation in Brazil that the use of an insecticide to kill mosquito larvae might be the cause of microcephaly rather than the infection and that's supported by the geographic distribution and the, the fact that previously we haven't identified microcephaly in epidemics. Would you like to comment on that? So uh, there's been a number of things raised as what could possibly be associated with the increase in microcephaly. When, uh, and the quick answer is that that hasn't shown to be true. When they've done very detailed examination, so initially I think I mentioned you know, the number was close to 4,000 babies they had recorded with microcephaly. They've now gone through and they're systematically evaluating all those babies. And indeed, it was only a smaller proportion that truly had microcephaly. Of those, um, when they've, they've found identifiable causes, and only a small portion have had Zika virus. But they haven't found a link to, and I think vaccines were another thing that were raised, or to um, toxins from spraying. Just to comment further on that, the, the products that have been used, that have been implicated in, in causing that, are used quite widespread throughout the world. There's no, um, you wouldn't think there's any evidence whatsoever that that's contributing to this. If it was, you'd be seeing changing patterns, so no. And as Cheryl said earlier, we've moved away from it being simply epidemiological evidence for the link between Zika and microcephaly. And you've got the evidence from animal models. You've got um, immune system produced IgM, which is a direct responsive virus in the cerebral spinal fluid, so the fluid around the brain in neonates with microcephaly. And we've seen virus from placental products and children with microcephaly. So I think we're well beyond the stage where we're just relying on epidemiology evidence for this link now. If I recall correctly, 
Um, the Zika virus was isolated first from a chimpanzee that was put in a cage um, out in the middle of the forest. Yep. Um, so how different is the current virus from that virus that was isolated in that chimpanzee? Um, and is there a, a role for an animal reservoir in terms of African uh, prevalence um, or indeed in terms of New World primates um, in America? And I, I think that's a really good question, and it's one that hasn't really been addressed to date. So the, the first one in the chimpanzee in 1947 was um, clearly of the African lineage, and some of the samples have shown that it's quite distinct to the Asian lineage that's now caused this epidemic. And there's been a couple of recent papers that have suggested that this current lineage is probably better adapted for the mosquitoes like Aedes aegypti um, to transmit it, whereas the one in Africa was being transmitted by Culex and other mosquitoes that weren't quite so avid biters during the day. Um, the, the, it is likely that in Africa it has lived in a, what we call a sylvatic cycle, so living within animal hosts, probably non-human primates, for you know, the length of time that it's been in Africa. It, what we don't have evidence for yet is where the Asian lineage is also going into animals, and I suspect that's the next key question, is to start to go out into populations, starting with non-human primates in Southeast Asia and elsewhere, but also looking at domestic animals to see if they can be a reservoir. But that hasn't been done yet. Yeah, I think that that's a really interesting question about what we can look to the future in terms of uh, these pathogens that are, that are cycling between these mosquitoes that rarely, if ever, have contact with people. They're living in tree holes and other forest habitats and biting primates or other wildlife. And as humans kind of get in there and uh, whether it be logging and deforestation or even ecotourism and urban development, we're kind of disrupting those cycles and, and exposing ourselves to those pathogens, which we then bring back to the city. The same cycles that have happened in the past with yellow fever. And perhaps there's others out there that aren't even on our radar yet that we'll, we'll find out about in coming years. Are there any other questions? Yes. I was just wondering um, whether the panel could speak a bit about the public health information and whether you think, um, whether number one, whether there's um, knowledge of, around awareness stats of Australia or um, what percentage of the population is aware. And also, um, if there's a gap there, what some advice and thoughts would be around um, public health information campaigns or just some reflection on that, where we could get to. Shall I start with that? Yeah, so from public health point of view, I think there has been information in the media, and actually the, the Australian media, like with the Ebola crisis, had a measured approach to this and certainly got on top of the fact that the WHO had declared this as a public health emergency. There was a lot of interest around then and some quite clear messaging coming through. And certainly ABC did a very colourful graphic to show how Zika virus is transmitted um, and another a number of newspapers sort of followed that through. So I think initially there was information and then we know that that wanes over time and we're probably at the point now where we need to re-establish that information ahead of the Rio Games. So hopefully, um, and probably one of the best ways of tackling that is anyone who is going to the Rio Games or has got a ticket, that a lot of that public information is given through those routes. So you're directly targeting those people that are most likely to be in Rio next uh, later this month. I think, Grant, oh, did you want to say oh, something? Only, only just to add two things. One is I think generally um, there is you know, fantastic websites of travel advice from the federal government that people should refer to wherever you're travelling. 
And secondly, um, that there are um, clear guidelines, again, about sexual transmission, risk, risk to women of childbearing age and, and advice and, and their partners, you know, about travel and what to do returning from travel. And, and obviously, as we're getting more information, this gets updated fairly quickly. But again, the federal government website is the best. All your local public health authorities. Yeah, I think there's one more message that we can take out of this, and that's that we've got to look beyond Zika virus in terms of providing advice for travellers going overseas. And this is something that I'm constantly um, uh, exhausting myself trying to communicate this to people, is that, you know, when Australians are travelling to tropical destinations, they have to use their strategies to avoid mosquitoes differently than what they do when they're on holidays during summer at Byron Bay or along the east coast of Australia. We, every summer we get messages about using repellents at dawn and dusk. Um, that's times when there's huge amounts of mosquitoes coming out of the coastal wetlands. You're going to put them on because they're nuisance biting. These mosquitoes that transmit Zika virus and other pathogens in these tropical destinations, they bite during the day. And they're not nearly as abundant as our wetland mosquitoes. So if you're waiting to be bothered by the mosquitoes biting you, it's too late. And, and I'm often telling people to you know, take repellent with you from home, put it on in the morning before you have breakfast, and you're going to be at best place to avoid these diseases. But I also think that we can think ahead in terms of the travellers coming home. So for those communities in Cairns and Townsville that see annual activity of dengue, if travellers coming back from Bali who potentially have been exposed to these pathogens, make a little bit of extra effort to avoid being bitten by mosquitoes when they come home, it's even further going to reduce the possibility of local outbreaks. And so I think that sort of behavioural change to encourage on people coming back from holidays can be just as valuable in preventing Australians getting sick at home as well. Are there any other questions? Yes. Hi. Um, so there, there's been a lot of exciting research on genetically modified mosquitoes and how they can be infect, effective in controlling uh, controlling the spread of these outbreaks. Um, like there's been a British biotech firm which has been genetically modifying the Aedes aegypti mosquito to be self-limiting, so dying before <coughs> um, dying before they reach adult uh, uh, adult size. But uh, this also speaks to um, Grant's point about uh, funding. Um, how, like, what will it take, like, at what stage will we have to get to for the WHO, the Pan American Health Organization, and even the European Centers for Disease Control, uh, for what, what will it take for them to switch their focus from being responsive to being proactive in vector control, and like, how effective it can be in reducing the spread of these diseases? Maybe I could take that to start with, because there are several international consortia that are relevant here. There's one that the NHMRC has signed up to called the Global Response for Infectious Disease Preparedness Research. And that's a body that that's consists of funders from many countries, including the NIH, the Wellcome Trust, as I've said, NHMRC, Japan, 14 different countries so far. And the aim of that group is to actually try and define what are the important research questions as soon as possible after an outbreak occurs. And Zika has been very much part of that agenda. What then happens is that the important research questions that are asked are sent back to the funders 
who then, in the case of the US, Europe and the UK, have put out millions of dollars worth of funding for large networked consortia who are not just based in the developed country but are also working in the affected countries, not only to, or in the first instance, of course, to address Zika, but to actually have in place a preparedness network for the next emerging infectious disease that comes, comes around. As far as the Australian input into specific research, it's been more of a general call. There's a large grant that's about to be awarded to develop a national network for emergency infectious disease preparedness research. So that's a $5 million grant over five years. We're part of that, but so is someone in every other state and territory. And there are other grants. There's a large Tropical North grant, which is largely around emerging infectious diseases, about to be awarded. And our own CREED, the Emerging Infectious Disease Protection Grant, are all in this area. So Australia hasn't really contributed nothing on the research side. I think it's done it in proportion to the relative problems in this country. Where it has fallen down a bit, though, is in the, as Grant suggested, putting money into affected countries to try and help control the response. Now, I wasn't going to end on a controversial note, but <laughs> so picking up, I, I think the WHO and PAHO and other organisations would love to be more proactive. I think mm -hmm. the key problem here is budgets are very, very constrained. So when countries give money to the WHO, they always have a label attached to it. So they say, this money is for HIV prevention, this is for TB control, this is this. There's never anything that is proactive or even reactive, and the outbreak response has been drastically cut. And, you know, as recent as last year, even with Ebola in the back of everyone's minds, the World Health Assembly said, we don't want to have $100 million set aside just to respond to emergencies, and so they voted against it. So again, you constantly go into these things underprepared without the expertise to actually be able to respond. And in terms of proactivity, a lot of that has to come down to individual countries. And for a long time, Brazil had a really good insecticide program and had really reduced its mosquito numbers. And it took its eye off the ball. It started defunding areas and mosquitoes exploded again. Um, we have the international health regulations um, in place to try and encourage countries to do these things. What we've done as a global community has never funded anyone to actually do that. Um, the U.S. is starting to take that up now. And what we now need to do is help all of those countries. Only 60 have actually met the requirements. So all of the rest of the countries actually implement those so that they can detect and respond to infectious diseases. So taking Grant's cue that that was a positive thing to end up on. <laughs> I'd like to thank you for coming along this evening and contributing all those great questions and to the panel for their presentation. Would you join me in thanking them?